And now it's the Cood Street Podcast with Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strawn, except Jonathan isn't with us today. He couldn't join this discussion, unfortunately, but we think we have a special podcast anyway uh, with one of our old friends, uh, William Schaefer, who is whose subterranean press is, and Harlan agrees with me about this, Harlan Ellison is our other guest. Uh, and I wanted to say this uh, and see if you agree with me about this, Harlan, that Subterranean Press is the most useful, probably the most useful press, or one of the most useful publishers, that our field has ever seen. I not only agree, I will see you in aces and raise you. The uh, Having been through the days of the beginning of amateur publishing and uh, non-professional publishing and then semi-professional publishing, uh, having seen people like uh, 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 Shasta Press and, uh, and uh, Gnome Press, uh, all the way through, uh, I can tell you that there is no one in this field who has ever approached the fidelity, talent, expansiveness, and interest of Subterranean Press. Bill Schaefer's company is straight arrow, pays everybody, publishes great books, and is dangerously and interestingly followable. Bill, you want to rebut that? So you know, Harlan, this is going straight on my website. (laughs) Well, I, I wish I could find the words to be better. Uh, I've been in business with just about everybody from Doubleday and, uh, 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 and all the way down to the lowest possible paperback. And I have never found a publisher that I felt more easy with, more reliable with, could trust more. If he gives you his word and he says something, that's the way it is. Let me back up for a minute, though, because I, Harl, I didn't give you a proper introduction, Harlan. And, I, and here's the thing. It occurred to me when I was telling people that we were going to have you on our podcast that I think you and possibly Isaac Asimov are the only two people ever in the field who are instantly recognized by a single name. The, the minute I say Harlan's going to be on, nobody asks me Harlan who. Um, Nobody thinks it's Harlan Coben. Nobody thinks it's 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 a coal miner from. <laughs> well, I for my for my sins, I am exactly who I have made myself, uh, better or worse, and uh, I'm perfectly. Uh, they they asked me recently. Time, uh, New York Times asked me for a uh, for an eighty year statement, and uh, I had already given my uh, my uh, was going to be on the grave. Uh, but I said, well, after an 80-year career of some value, uh, as an outsider, I have only come to the 98.2 point conclude, 98.2 conclusion, percent conclusion, that the human race was an experiment with doing. And they said, well, we can't say that. <laughs> and I said, well, that's, that's quote you wanted and that's what you got Bill put another very nice quote on the back of my new book The Top of the Volcano which is my 115th book 
Wow. And which I have in front of me here. And I do too, and that's why we're doing, uh, for people who might have been wondering why I'm having the legendary Harlan Ellison on with the rapidly becoming legendary Bill Schaefer, is to celebrate the top of a volcano, the award-winning stories of Harlan Ellison, which I've already said in print is, I think, the most useful collection we have of, of Harlan's work right now for people who haven't read him. But my first question to both of you is, who thought up that title? Uh, Harlan did. Okay. Harlan, what's he, the title? It was either going to be the, the mouth of the volcano or the top of the volcano. Oh, this is... As top. I recall. Yeah, top is much better. Harlan? Am I supposed to fill in on that? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm just wondering... <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I've reached the age where I only answer things that, that, uh, that need to be answered. Other things that are obvious, yes, uh, if uh, Bill remembers that I, that I thought of a top of the volcano, I'm very, very pleased. The cover was put together by, uh, by Bill and his staff. Is it Michael Whelan, an unpublished Michael Whelan, and I think it's absolutely gorgeous. It is. The book itself is... Uh, uh, could not be better. It's just, it's just, it just fills me with joy. It's also the first. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's. The, the funny thing is that it's not hard to find your stories, Harlan. But it's, it's hard to find all these. We should say this is the award-winning stories of Harlan Ellison, which yes. I think is a very interesting way of putting together stories because nobody's bias comes into this except the bias of, I guess, the entire reading community in science fiction who have given you these awards. But well, there were how many in there, Bill? 30? Uh, hang on while I count. Ah. I think there's 30 stories that go all the way back to uh, my very first uh, award winner, uh, the very first... I was the first person ever to win a Hugo and a Nebula in the same year in the short story. And that was... Uh, it looks like 23. 23. That's a long run. Had it been 30, this would have really been a small mammal crusher. <laughs> yeah. Well, the most recent is only a couple of years ago. I won a Nebula a couple of years ago. Nice. It's nice every once in a while just to annoy the shit out of people. Am I allowed to say the, uh, the word annoy? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, fine. Okay. No problem. It's, it's, a nice, it's nice to be riding on a coast-to-coast -coast airliner doing the New York Times crossword puzzle in pen. In because pen. it makes people annoyed. They look at it and say, that isn't right. So every once in a while, after I'm legendary, and one loses the value of legendary very, very quickly, uh, to win an award and say, oh, well, he's not dead, he's still writing. And that's a pretty good story. And that makes me very, very happy. Well, well Bill, go ahead. I know you, you and I have actually talked about this a, a couple of times in the dim and distant past, or at least the, the 15 years that we share our friendship, that you have felt occasionally that uh, you have been hot again for a moment. Is, is this one of those moments coming on again? Yes, it's very hot now, uh, and it's good for Bill that it's hot. Uh, I will tell you a true thing now that a lot of people listening may not like, but this. When I am, a, uh, when I am uh, 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 cozened into going to one of these horrible paperback signing, uh, old magazine signing things, 
and they'll have 50 people there, and everyone will line up, and they will have gotten 49 signatures, and there's still 1,700 people along the wall hmm. with their bags that they've had their mules bring in, their wives, their, yeah. their children, uh, and they won't stop. And they've got number 117, and I'm signing number 95. And I ask a woman at the back, what number do you have? She says 450. And I say, ma'am, this place closes at 530, and they close the doors, and they won't move. I don't need that adoration. Some people like it. Some people feel that they have to be attended to. I really have lost that. I've had nothing but pleasure and adulation and more than my proper respect and and, uh, and and reps in my time, where I've just grown so weary of it that I just wish people would be happy, read the stories if they like, remember them, fine. I don't have to be on Who's Dancing with the Stars tonight. No, I, I think... think Go ahead, Memory Bill. is... I'm, I'm sorry, I just needed to put okay. a little tag on it. I think memory is the most easily and forgotten award. I think that's true. And one of the things that, uh, that I thought about when I was looking at these stories, and uh, most of which, as, as you know, Harlan, I've read many times, that there is a, a significant generation of writers, including good friends of mine, and a significant yeah. generation of readers, who, when you won that first Hugo and Nebula for, I think, Repent Harlequin, who had not been born yet. Yeah. So the idea that there are new generations that come along every once in a while uh, and, and are still having the experience of discovering a story like I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And for, for decades now, I've been uh, recommending that story because that's one of the titles that people, once they see the title, can't resist wanting to know what the story is about. So are you still getting sense, are you still getting that kind of feedback from new readers? It's been, it's been very, very, very gracious. Uh, I think that it is absolutely proper and just that new generations don't know what the shit happened before. Okay. Uh, they don't need to pay homage. They need not have read Moby Dick and the House of the Seven Gables to be able to read. Nancy Drew in the middle and, and uh, a tween Twilight novel. Now, I am obsessively compulsive about staying au courant. So I know everything that was and was between and is now. And I keep up with everybody. And I read the magazines every month. And I meet a lot of magazines, 20 mm -hmm. different magazines. I know what's going on in science, I know what's going on in history, I know what's going on in geography, but yet I know the truth of the matter is that most people don't know nothing. They forgot everything, if they ever knew it, and they don't know why they should respect it. They don't know the linkages that turn into more than just a bunch of sausages. So I am really, really content. I'm a happy little camper, Bill, uh, uh, Gary. Uh, I knew you and, and Dee Dee, and I will never forget you two and what you did for me any more than I can forget Bill and what he is doing for me. But I'm happy. I sit here all by myself with my wife 
in the lost Aztec temple of Mars, filled with all the great art. And if someone says, well, who's that? I'll say, well, that's Picasso's Guernica. And they'll say, well, what is that? And I'll say, well, that was a back cover that was done by Robert Gibson Jones. Mm-hmm. And they don't know the difference. I do. It'll never be sold. It'll never be auctioned off. It'll never be lost. It's like Shangri-La. It's been kept here for the eternities. <laughs> But you're saying that doesn't bother you, that uh, because that happens. No, with, uh, I'm glad to hear that. I, there are people. Oh God, no, Gary. No, there are people the in our thing field. The only that bothers me is I never get to see you. Well, no, I, and I have to get out there, and we have to visit sometime, because uh, we. Um, and it's also very good to hear you in in good form, because last October we were all a bit nervous when we first heard about that stroke, which I gather has not had any. Certainly doesn't seem to have any effects on your talking to us now. Well, it's, it, you know, everybody has a post-stub in their life. I had a uh, quadruple bypass 15 years ago, and then a stent failed. But I've had a life pretty fairly for a hard life and an outside life and a, and a life working on the railroads and a life working on construction and being in gangs, doing all the really the hard things that, you know, get you knifed and killed real mm-hmm. quick. I've had a life very free of any serious illnesses. Never had cancer, never had uh, uh, old problems, any of those things. But uh, one day, <clears throat> it's, been, it's been mounting up, apparently. Uh, being a fairly, uh, you know, I wake up angry every morning and angry every night, uh, just mm-hmm. from, you know, looking at the news. But my life is the greatest life in the world. I have the, what everybody says, I want the good life. I've got the good life. I'm not rich. But boy, I got a 115 books on the shelf. Gary Wolf and, uh, and, and Bill Schaefer call me on a Sunday morning. Yeah, this is. Well, this and is... next week, one of us will be flying out to say hello and trouble you. Uh, he's coming out here. He's going to be sitting right here in, in this very place you're talking to, Gary. Oh, I wish I could be there. I remember, I remember sleeping in the grotto once. Uh, <laughs> oh, good, yeah. That was scary. Um, that, uh, Harlan showed me the grotto, and my, my only thought was that he was going to close the door, and all I was going to hear was, it puts the lotion on itself. The grotto is an underground work of art that was done by a Japanese artisan. It is all made of volcanic rock. It goes down steps. It is heavy, deeply uh, carpeted so that you can sleep at any angle and you don't hear the street. And I used it. I mean, everything here in form follows function. I built it because when I had been writing all night and I needed to sleep during the day, I couldn't sleep because the uh, people going by on the street, not many, but some, would keep me awake. So I built the grotto. You close the door. It's got air conditioning. It's got uh, everything in it. It's even got a light if you need it. But Michael Moorcock came and lived there for six months and finally wound up marrying my secretary. That's who Michael Moorcock is married to, Linda. We should, I will say it is a hugely comfortable place to take a, to lay down for a bit. It's a it's more, Gary. You you haven't seen it in the last forty years. And Susan and I wander around here. 
like a pair of elves in Wonderland. <laughs> <clears throat> it's a it, it is a legendary house. Have you ever thought about doing just a photo releasing a photo essay of your house? Well, you know, many people have suggested it. It's a grand idea, and I'd love to do it. The only problem is this: the minute you put together a book full of art treasures, something's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Every now and uh, now, more often than not, I've got every major auction house just suddenly appearing at my door and saying, hi, I understand you have a Charles Bragg. And I say, I have 40 of them. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And they want to get their nose in here. I, uh, I, 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 everything I own, I own because I can't bear not to look at it every day. I can understand that, and here's a question. We're, 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 getting, we're getting away from literature, but something that I remember again from 20 years ago. Your saltwater taffy collection, is that all gone now? Uh, no, I've, I've managed to eke it out so I don't. When I was a little kid, uh, Euclid Beach was the only little Ferris wheel uh, carnival place near me in Cleveland. And they had a place that made saltwater taffy. And it's the most remarkable stuff you've ever tasted. It doesn't taste like saltwater taffy. And years later, I couldn't get it out of my mind. Couldn't get it anymore because the place had closed down and the, the whole park had closed down. But I did the research, and George Alec Effinger helped me on this because George was living in Cleveland. George went to the city hall and found who had bought the park and the uh, and the uh, the uh, the candy maker and I found the people who had owned it and they had the machine in the back of a store and hadn't made any in 50 years and I called them and said I'll pay you whatever you charge I won't argue with you I won't haggle with you take the machines out clean them up and make me a hundred bags and I'll keep ordering them, 10 bags a year. And I still have them, and they're in the refrigerator. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> when, when, when Bill comes here, he can have one. Oh, Harlan, I really like your commitment to obsession. <laughs> I, uh, there's, a, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful poet named Alan Miller who said, of all liars, the most beautiful is memory. And there's no way of going back, except in memory, to the moment when you had the bite of your first baby Ruth bar. There's no moment in time, except memory, going back to the first moment you opened a Raymond Chandler novel. Oh. And if I am part of that memory, then I have been here for a short time, and for a short time I was some worth. The... Can't that backfire on you? I mean, I remember loving Doc Smith stories when I was a kid. And it didn't take long after I decided, I'm going to read one of these Doc Smith stories again. When you get to a certain age and you think, I think I know what made me fall in love with this. But yeah. it's really not very well written. But it, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it was like Edgar Rice Burroughs. You well, said, oh my dear. Yeah. Well, you must go back with the nostalgia. You must go back with pure hands and composure. Uh, at the moment, 
uh, at the top of my stack of what I'm reading is a new James Morrow book. He's the most brilliant satirist we've had since Vonnegut. And I'm reading my friend Patton Oswalt, the comedian's new book, uh-huh. Silver Screen Fiend, which is his memoir of having seen hundreds of movies and growing up to become the best stand-up in the country today. I've got the best friends in the world. Neil Gaiman calls me all the time, and Josh Olsen calls me all the time. And and I wish Gary would call me more, but Bill and I talk every day. Okay, I'm... I'm, I'm you, you. You're also very good at guilt, Harlan, um, and, and you well, know that. Well, I'm a Jew. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, we had... If we, we had... hadn't had guilt, we'd have been, we'd have been wiped out 5,000 years ago. There's one of the things that, um, that's interesting. You mentioned Jim Morrow's new novel, uh, Galapagos Regained. He was on our podcast last week, and... Yeah, uh, and we're, and his collected. I, I'll, I'll plug this again because I wrote the introduction. His the best of James Morrow is coming out from Wesley in this coming fall. Um, ah. I love these retrospective collections. Um, but one of the things that you and you also mentioned Neil Gaiman, who in his new book um, has a series of stories, one story for each month of the year, which he says was inspired by you. Um, yes, of course. Writing stories in 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 front of an audience, but apart from from that sort of influence as what, you know, really was kind of a stunt. You're in the wind. The stories that came out of that are also stories that influence the Gaiman stories. For example, um, this is one of the things I think that's a lot, that's frequently overlooked in, in terms of your work after the, after the 70s, is you, were, you would write a lot of stories that were what I call compound stories, short vignettes put together, things like The Man Who Rode... Christopher Columbus ashore, and yeah. and the challenge of reading the stories, of course, is making the connections yourself. And with this collection of Gaiman stories, and I I, I I I think I said this in my review of it, he may not realize how much the stories within the stories are influenced by that kind of writing. Um, well, when I started doing these, it was strictly by chance. Uh, I have written now three, and I will give you a, I will give you a big exclusive. Mm-hmm. It is possible I may do a fourth, Abbasidarian. And people say, what does that mean, Abbasidarian? It means from A to Z, mm-hmm. A, B, C, D, all the way to Z, Abbasidarian stories. And the first one was from A to Z in the chocolate alphabet. Right. The second one was called from A to Z in the sarsaparilla alphabet. And the third one uh, will probably be from A to Z in the lemon-lime alphabet, which will be all the lost continents, islands, promontories uh, of everywhere from Atlantis to Mew to Sumeria. And uh, it opens with uh, A is for Atlantis. And the way the story begins is... Awaking from troubling dreams, but not about insects, Gregor Samsa, who was the third cellist in the Lemurian Philharmonic Orchestra, (laughs) got out of bed, dressed in his finest tuxedo, and went to the most important meeting of his life. That's the first story. Mm -hmm. Has nothing to do with anything of anything. Everything interlocks 
And I find as I get older and older, I like to write more and more complex stories so that a, a reader cannot walk around as if it were a piece of sculpture. He or she must look at it as if it were a read it and then say, what the hell did that mean? And then go back to it and begin examining it like a Chinese puzzle box. Find a drawer, mm-hmm. find a comp- counter under it, find a, 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 a reach behind it. And when they finally get done, the clue will have been at the very, very beginning, the title of the story, and the answer will be at the very end. And that's the one I just wrote, which was just published, called He Who Grew Up Reading Sherlock Holmes. Well, if I can interject, a good deal of the fun of that particular story and, and getting it bits and pieces from you was puzzling my way through uh, the different mosaic pieces to see if I could figure out where you were going before you got there because I really like the payoff to that story. Yeah. It's a, it's a very heavy story. It's probably the most complex story I've ever written. And the nice thing about staying at the game for this many years, and it's, I'm 80 now, so it's over 50, uh, I started writing when I was 12, is that I have finally gotten good enough. I'm not really good yet, but I've gotten good enough to be able to produce a story like Bill published in Subterranean Magazine, he who grew up reading Sherlock Holmes, and that you would call me and have this conversation, and I would get a book like Top of the Volcano. Well, it makes the reader complicit in the story, in a way, since uh, yeah. you, you, know, you have to draw these connections. Uh, and and it's a technique which uh, a, which a few writers do. I mean, that's certainly characteristic of Gene Wolfe stories. Um, that's the thing that bothers me about a lot of what is being written today for young adults. You read it, and it's like washing your armpits. You're done, and it's done. Yeah. And you may be cleaner, but you're not much smarter. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing I was thinking about this morning, though, as to how you know you began writing stories like that because um, the, it, the whole science fiction and fantasy field has periodically had writers who come out of nowhere with short stories that make other writers think, "I didn't know I could do that." I mean, in the yep. '50s there was Cordwainer Smith, uh, there was, and and we still have this today with uh, writers like uh, Ted Chang or, or Rachel Swirsky, who's been published by Bill or um, Kelly Link. But Harlan, what I'm going to say is you weren't one of those. You weren't one of those because you'd been writing science fiction for about 10 years before things like Repent Harlequin. And yeah. and I know you and Bob Silverberg were writing whole issues of super science fiction, practically. Indeed we were. Under various okay. names. But it, 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 got to, it got to a point where... Uh, You'd been doing everything you'd been doing. You thought you were doing it right. You looked around. Everybody else was doing the same thing. And you just said, wait, wait a minute, I can throw the ball higher than that. And so you took chances. And Erwin Shaw pointed out in one of his great quotes that you look at a person's career, and it's not a straight line. It's a mountain, and then it drops to a valley, and then it goes along a plain, and then a few more hills, and then rises to a mountain that you never knew was there. 
And that's what you go for. You go for those moments when you'll write, I have no mouth and I must scream, or you will write, uh, uh, how interesting a little man, a tiny man, mm -hmm. uh, or you'll get a book like The Top of the Volcano and you'll say, I, I did it right. I was there and I did it right. Mm -hmm. And that's all you can say. What the hell have you got left at the end of the game? You're on the road, you're on the river all by yourself in the kayak, and you're walking, and you, you're going down, and you I was there, I did it. I was not an observer in my life. I was a participant. Well, you, you may have been a participant, but you, you continue to be, Harlan. Uh, I, I started reading you, I think you know, when I was 17. So uh, I was one of those who came along after I have no mouth. And, and luckily, I was, I was young enough when someone gave me a copy of Saturday that I had the time and the attention to, yeah. to just start picking up and reading more and more and more. I just love what I've done. I'm just nuts about what I've done and where <laughs> I've been and who I've been with. And I've done the great and the near great, and I know you too. And it's, it's just a, it's a swell life. I, got, I haven't got one beef in the world except the Nazis. I didn't like the Nazis. I was not happy about the Nazis. No, they weren't. <laughs> and you're not, not good. good. You're not, I, not good. You're not that happy with the young adults. And, 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 and Brussels sprouts. Oh, come on. Brussels sprouts. Are oh, fine. please. I'm with Harlan on this one. Yeah. Don't, nobody try to, you know, lie to me about Brussels sprouts. I know what they're like. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll send you a recipe. Um, the other thing, which is, um, I, I, I want to get back to some of the other things, because um, Subterranean is also reprinted uh, early, early collections of yours, like... Uh, the Deadly Streets and um, Gentleman Junkie, I believe. And you, you haven't done Love Ain't Nothing But Sex Misspelled yet, have you, Bill? Uh, no. And and I'll I'll tell you, we did the, those uh, the Deadly Streets and Gentleman Junkie in part because uh, I really wanted to publish uh, Daniel White for the Greater Good. Uh huh. Great yeah. story. And uh, also because it was a way of getting some new Dylan artwork. And, and, and I happen to be very fond of those stories and think that, that uh, sometimes they get a bit overlooked when, when, when Harlan's best stories are considered. If you take those two books, uh, uh, Gary, and you open the dust jackets all the way out and lay them together, that triptych or quadriptych is the Dylan's, both the covers. And I have the originals uh -huh. framed. Wow. Well, we should also mention for people, this, this, is, this is the one, um, it's not a flaw in Top of the Volcano, uh, but it's, it's a necessary omission. If you're talking about the award-winning stories of Harlan Ellison, uh, there are a lot of mainstream stories, uh, including the, 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 the juvie stories, the, 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 the genre that really died out, it seems to me, the JD fiction, which was so big. The mainstream stories, the stories that were in uh, Rogue Magazine. Stories like Daniel White for the Greater Good, they're never going to get Nebula and Hugos because they're not science fiction stories. And a good chunk of your short fiction, Harlan, is not science fiction or fantasy. Well, G Gary, let me, let me put in a plug. Everybody goes and runs their electronic horror to Google things up. Apart from pushing up subterraneanpress.com, mm -hmm. 
If you go to harlanellisonbooks.com, harlanellisonbooks.com, mm -hmm. you will see that I personally have published 14 books in the last two years under my imprimatur, Edgeworks Abbey. Uh -huh. And almost all of those stories are now published. We did a sequel to Harlan Ellison's Watching, my book of film criticism called Harlan Ellison's Endlessly Watching. And all of the juvie stuff we did as two books, Honorable Whoredom at a Penny a Word, mm -hmm. and again, comma, Honorable Whoredom at a Penny a Word. Okay. And full novels, and full scripts, and things that people were saying, well, gee, he didn't write anything for five years. Well, yeah, I was. I was working at the studios, and I did five movies, all of which are published in those books with, in their manuscript forms with the, with the corrections and everything on them. That's good They're to pretty, know. pretty books. Um, but the, um, and they are very good and, and a good deal of fun. You get everything from the the duel to the death raid. Oh, uh, I guess that's in there. Mm -hmm. um, which which I enjoyed the twist in the middle quite a bit, I'll admit. And uh, it, uh, the more ambitious work like Cutter's World. Oh, you're, you're very kind to me. Very kind on a Sunday morning. I may go back to sleep for five hours. <laughs> okay. Well, Here's a trivia question, which I can only ask because of having written that book. Have you republished? Okay, one of the scripts which I was really impressed with was one you did for a western called Cimarron Strip. Yeah. And it's a Jack the Ripper story. That's correct. Is that? Have you got that republished? Yes, we did. Okay, I'm I'm impressed. Yeah, and it's it's in it's in one of the six Harlowellson.com books called Brain Movies. Brain Movies. And uh, we did the uh, we did uh, deeper than the darkness, mm -hmm. and um, uh, it's out on Blu-ray in this about fourth or fifth edition. Uh, Stuart Whitman did it, and uh, it's his favorite, and uh, it's one of my favorites. What? Uh, what was the title of that script, Harlan? Deeper than the darkness. That is in volume two of Brain Movies. I have. I have all 14 of those oh, volumes wow. sitting here on a shelf. Mm. And I'm slowly reading my way through them. Tell you, that, tell you guys an anecdote. When they shot the film, the guy who was the director, whose name I shall not mention because I'm not a bad guy, mm. was really a hack. And we had one of the women who was being stalked by this guy who was, in fact, Jack the River in the Old West. And she's running like a son of a bitch. Her legs are moving so fast you can see them as a blue blur. And mm. then he photographed the guy going, step, 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 step. The woman would have been in the next town by the time he reached her. And then, of course, he gets her and kills her. And there was nothing we could do. We couldn't reshoot it. It was those days. Uh, I went through a lot of that, tore my hair out, and fortunately grew it all back. Um, that was just an anecdote. 
Well, I mean, people did mess with your scripts quite a bit, and the most famous story of that, of course, is the Star Trek thing, which you've, which you pretty clearly made made available. I'm willing to bet that there are as many people who know your original version of the City on the Edge of Forever. Well, I wouldn't say as many people know that as know the actual episode, but that's certainly. Well, IPW just did and just published this available right now uh-huh. in your local comic book store. A graphic novel of all five of the individual issues with the most gorgeous artwork by J.K. Woodward. Uh, I mean, it is really astonishing. Double covers done by Juan Ortiz and uh, another guy. And it's all five of the issues, and it's very different from most of what they put on the air. And we've been getting love letters. Oh, wonderful. It was on the bestseller list of the New York Times. And uh, if you get a copy of it, Gary, just look for pleasure. Okay, that's another good tip for us. Let me talk about uh, another thing which is uh, interesting. And it came to mind a few minutes ago when we were talking about Neil Gaiman, who's been, and who in general is very generous about uh, acknowledging his influences. and your influence as a writer is something which I think may be overlooked, and it's certainly not something that, that you've trumpeted yourself, Harlan, but um, one, of the things, one of the things that brought that to mind was, I think, Open Road has published a couple of unpublished stories by Octavia Butler, uh, yeah. one of which was yeah. written for you. And yes, well, she was, I discovered her. Okay, I want to... I tell you a story? Yeah, I want to. I want to hear. Well, the thing is, I, I should start by saying I only met her a few times. I think Carlin, you and I were on a panel together with her once. Yeah, yeah. And she was she was very uh, very open about acknowledging how she viewed you as a mentor. And I think she said this in published interviews. Um, yes. So how did you discover Octavia Butler? Well, I called her Estelle. Her 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 mother or her aunt was named Estelle. And in the family, they called her Estelle, not Octavia. Mm-hmm. But um, the Writers Guild of America, the WGAW, decided back in the, well, it was before I married Susan, so that's 30 years ago, something about 40 years ago, decided that there were not enough black writers, there are not enough women writers, there are not enough transgender or people of other countries, Asian writers, Mm -hmm. and so we started the Open Door Program, and we uh, rented a uh, a high school room, and on a Saturday, I and three or four other writers would come in, and we would just sit and wait for them to come in, and one day, this very, very tall black woman came in, and very shy, with her hand over her lips, and uh, she sat there, and I did my thing for an hour, an hour and a half, and uh, I've taught at a lot of workshops, Clarion and many, many, many others, turned out some really good writers, so I knew what I was doing, and uh, when the class was over, she walked over and very timorously handed me a a script and said, would you look at this? And I said, yes, I would. It was a sitcom. She was trying to write situation comedies. Really? Yeah. She thought that was the way to break in because she was an amateur. 
And I read it, and I gave it back to her and corrected it and said, no, it's not terribly good, but try this, try this, maybe it'll be better. And she did a second one, it was not much better. And the third and the fourth. And then I read one of her pieces and I said, you know, you really should be writing prose. And she said, uh, yes. I said, do you read uh, other books? And she said, yes. And I said, try this. And I gave her two books. One of them was my book, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, in a paperback. And the other one was Robert Sheckley's Untouched by Human Hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, she went and read them. And she came back the next week and didn't have a story, but she said, I think I'd like to try a story. And I said, please do. And she did it. And it was not bad. Not bad. Uh A lot of flaws, but not bad. She went back, did another one, better. Another one, better. Did another one. The fourth one she did, I bought for The Last Dangerous Visions. Mm-hmm. called Child Finder, which has sat in the drawer, unpublished, for all the years. Then I got a, then I got a, a then, then she started uh, uh, trying to go longer length, and I got her a contract with Doubleday, and they published her first two, three books. Next thing I knew, she was a spokesperson for black people, and black women, and black writers, and she was her own person. And she and I used to go out together all the time. And one of my great gags was taking in Nate Nowell's Delicatessen, mm-hmm. which has low booths, and there's all white people, and always Jewish. And Usona was either six feet, and I'm five foot five, so I would be <laughs> practically hidden on one side, and she would be sticking up at every fucking white person. I mean, nice people having their potato pancakes and their, you know, so cool, mm-hmm. uh, would be staring at her, wondering how this creature from Mars had gotten in there. And Usona, uh, 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 Octavia, or Estelle, would be, she'd be looking at me with the look, saying, you did this to me again, didn't <laughs> you? And I, would, and I would look at her and smile and say, please, Eat your, eat your, eat your matzah. And she would. And we used to like to do a gag where I, white-faced, little white-faced guy, I told you, and then finally, a few months back, my, my, my agent, Richard Curtis, sold his company to a company called the Open Road, which has 30 of my titles in the Harold Nelson collection. They're very, very pretty books and can be bought, openroad.com. Excellent. And they decided they were going to do a book of Octavia Butler stories. And they pulled two of her stories unpublished, one of which was the one she had sold to me. And I spoke to Richard, and I said, you know, the rights are out, and the family can do what they want. Mm -hmm. I said, but I'd love to do the introduction. So they haggled with me and they, you know, tried to goy me down, as we Jewish people say, they goyed me down. Mm. And uh, I'm doing the introduction for the Open Road collection of Octavia Stell Butler's stories. 
the circle comes full. Wonderful. Well, I, have to I, I actually need to correct you there, Harlan. Mm -hmm. It's it's not open road you're doing it for. It's me. Uh, oh, it's to Bill. Yeah. Oh, I'm yes. sorry, Bill. I, my my error. My error. Some things I don't know. Yes, yours. Your intro or your appreciation of Estelle will be exclusively in the hardcover that we're doing. Oh, good. Wherever, if it appears there, I am dead happy. I believe it was the open road uh, just an ebook. It, it it was, and then and then I was approached to do a hardcover of it. Okay. I need to introduce. I need to interject a parenthesis here because this is why this is why I have Jonathan uh, do the recording whenever possible because my cat stepped on my trackpad and 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 put the recording on pause at some point, which means Harlan, part of your story about Octavia may be in a gap there somewhere. We'll find out. <laughs> Recreate. Oh, well, um, fill it in with any strange thing you wish. Okay, well, that's that's very generous of you. Um, I'm sorry that Jonathan is not with us. I'm enormously fond of Jonathan, and one of my best stories I wrote for him where I shall dwell in the next world. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Eidolons. 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 That was, no, that was a long time magazine. ago. When and that was one of your, the first of those... Uh, those sort of mosaic stories, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, Jonathan will certainly miss being here because we're having a great... Okay, other people that... I know that um, Octavia... I was, I was, what I was going to say about uh, Octavia Butler was that it did seem to me that after she got the MacArthur grant, it gave her a real shot of self-confidence. Uh, well, they called me and uh, they said, we're, we're planning on giving the MacArthur grant to Octavia Butler. And... and People who had gotten the uh, uh, the MacArthur grant had been Will and Ariel Durant and uh, other people I had known of, of great stature. Mm -hmm. And I said she's a great candidate. And I did a uh, I did a reference for her and uh, to an encomium, and uh, she got the award. And uh, it was uh, she was certainly uh, of stature. And that seemed, unfortunately, she only had a few years after that. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, she died far too young and um, much lamented. But she's... Sweetest only... woman who ever lived. She seemed that way, what little I yeah. knew uh, with her. But she never had a bad word for anybody, even though she could have had a bad word for her. Unlike me. <laughs> But she's somebody you're obviously proud of having worked with. Are there other people like that that you think you really helped in some way that, that gave us literature we otherwise wouldn't have? How long do you want the list? Alphabetical or chronological? Oh, chronological for sure. I mean, I know some of the people that you helped. Uh, and the interesting... Well, go ahead. The interesting Ed, Edward, you, Edward Bryan. Yeah. Robert Silverberg. Uh, Robert Sheckley. Um... Uh, uh, well, George Effinger, I suppose. Many women, any number of women, uh, dwarves, elves, trolls, <laughs> dogs, many dogs, many dogs I have, uh, I have worked with. Who do you enjoy reading today? Uh, whoever it is I'm reading today, and uh, today I'm reading... Uh, a PM Press book by Paul Krasner called Patty Hearst and the uh, Twinkie Murders. 
I'm reading, uh, rereading uh, Thomas Pynchon's Inherent Vice before I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm reading uh, for the third time Adam Troy Castro's Emissaries from the Dead, uh, a book of Shirley Jackson stories. Wonderful. And um, uh, as I said, the Patton Oswalt book. And uh, I'm reading Dave McKean's uh, uh, and Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum, mm-hmm. Batman novel. Didn't you tell me that you'd met Thomas Pynchon once without knowing it? I'm sorry, say again. Uh, didn't you tell me that you had once met Thomas Pynchon without actually knowing it? Yeah, he keeps doing this to me. <laughs> Pynchon was to be the first story in Dangerous Visions. He had done a story called, um, it was an Invisible Playmate story that he had had at Collier's. Can't remember the name of it. He finally used it as the title of his book of short stories. And uh, I wrote to him through his agent, and I got a letter back from him saying I'm not worthy enough to be in the Uh presence of Ray Bradbury and uh, Isaac Asimov and uh, Mildred Klingerman and all the rest of all these writers who were very hot at the time. Uh And uh, he said, uh, no, I I, I can't let you have the story. I said, fine. And uh, I said, we should talk some time. And he said, fine, we'll talk. And we talked. He would call, and I would call him. I never had his number. He would call me, and he'd say, hi, this is Tom Pension. I'd say, hi. And he decided not to pay his taxes during the Vietnam War. Mm. He thought it was an unjust war. And I said, I'm with you. So I didn't pay my taxes. So they sent marshals around to arrest me. And I got out of it. But the next time he called, I said, oh, Pynchon, what are you selling this time? Cancer? (laughs) (laughs) So one night I'm in New York, sitting on the bed waiting to go and do a lecture the next day. And I was going to be sitting in the window of Barnes & Noble writing a story which I did. And Pynchon says, I'm going to come and introduce myself. And I said, great. Well, I was there all day. Then I went and did the lecture, did a radio broadcast, did a television broadcast, signed for about three hours. Next day, I'm back in Los Angeles on the red eye. I get a call. And he says, you look younger than I thought. And I said, who's this? He says, it's Pynchon. I said, Pynchon, where the hell are you? He said, I'm in New York. So why didn't you say hello? He said, I did. We shook hands. <laughs> <laughs> so one of those people who was asking you to sign a book. Male, female, or dog have no idea. That's a great story. Yeah. Well, I have, I'm, I'm, I'm a great raconteur of telling stories about the great and the near great. Many of them I cannot tell. I'm like the vault. That one I could tell because he set me up, and it's terrible. I could tell stories about you, Gary. You probably could. Oh. We'll just skip Schaefer, on to the next... unfortunately, <laughs> is a wife of the sepulcher. Yeah. The man has never committed a sin in his life. Oh, dear Harlan. I'll disabuse you of that notion at some point. <laughs> Please. 
Well, one of the uh, well, getting since you since you brought us back to subterranean for a minute, uh, I want to explain my opening remark, and Harlan, I think you'll probably agree with me uh, because you mentioned Harlan publishers like Shasta and Gnome Press back in the early fifties, some yeah. of whom did some notorious things, but there have always been specialty presses in science fiction that would uh, you know that would bring science fiction writers into print, especially in the fifties. And then and collectors editions for you'd have um, you know a few copies of a really nice thing. Yeah. And there've also also been small presses that promote new writers. There have been very few publishers that do both. Uh, and one of the things that when I said useful about subterranean press is we not only have Harlem, we have your works in print. We have how many volumes now of Bob Silverberg's stories? Six. Nine. Nine. Um, Nine. But at the same time, this is what Subterranean Press does that the others didn't do. At the same time, you'll have new writers like Rachel Swirsky or, or Kat Valenti. Uh, and my question is, I would hope this is the case, but I, I kind of doubt it, is that the readers who want those new young writers who, who grew up you know, reading people like, well, I guess nobody grew up reading Rachel Swirsky, but I remember talking to her. You know, she, There's a whole group of readers who... Maybe if they like the older writers, we'll discover the newer writers. Maybe if they like the newer writers, we'll discover the older writers. Is that sort of what you think might happen, Bill? Uh, well, my, no. Mostly, we, we, my mailing list is built up of a lot of people who follow a certain set of writers uh-huh. and, 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 and don't tend to jump across to others unless... Um, unless there, there starts to be some buzz about them, like uh, the K.J. Parker collection we did yeah. uh, did very well for us. But you know, amongst older readers and, and, and those who were focusing on, on, on younger writers. So uh, there are two audiences, really. There, there really are. In fact, there are many different audiences because there are people who are only interested in reading their favorite writer, and the only time we hear from them as customers is... Yeah. When we announce a book by that particular writer. So, for example, you knew Jack Vance collection of novellas, which I think Jonathan co-edited, didn't he? Uh, Correct. You know, in, in some unpleasant way that we have to come to grips with, all the people lining up, going away from us, are like slow ponies who have to be hit in the forehead with a ball-peen hammer. <laughs> They'll spend hours on the internet saying ridiculous things of no consequence that have no meaning and are flown away like dust notes. But if you go on an internet, as I go on harlanellis.com, and I have quite a following and I get something like 19,000 hits a week, mm-hmm. and I say how how awful, lying, and deceitful was a certain Disney movie that made little of a writer. The next thing you know, we've got people in Ireland, Dubai, the Cameroons, having picked up a copy of one of those novels and saying, this is wonderful, and then reading them all, and then going on to Uncle Wiggily, and then going on to Ray Bradbury, and then going on to Herman Melville, that if you alert them, if you hit them in the head enough times with a ball-peen hammer, somebody will get 
a message of some kind. And if you alert one and get them on to something other than a Twilight novel, you have done a good work. And that's what Bill's been doing. His books are staunch, sturdy, across the board. They look beautiful, and they look great on a bookshelf. They're not just wallpaper. They're attractive. They're very attractive books, yeah. And yeah. you, you, you are the same thing, Gary. You serve, I know you think, well, I'm just a reviewer, or well, I'm just a college teacher, or well, I'm this, or I'm a biographer. But in fact, you are one of the great staunch pillars of Poseidon. I've never been called a staunch pillar of Poseidon. And well, I've touched just on it, and you may, you may, you may, you may batten on it. And give a kiss to Dee Dee for me tonight. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. So. And you give a kiss to Gretchen for me tonight. Absolutely, Armand. And, well, you can give a kiss to Susan for both of us. I will do that in about a minute. Okay, the last few minutes here, what are you, you already told us a little bit about what you're writing right now, but it's pretty clear that um, even though you, as you mentioned, will turn 81 sometime this year. May. You know, you're 80 now, right? I'm 80 now, I'll be, I'll be 81 in May. Silverberg just turned 80. I have six months on him. I keep calling for six months. I call him kid. He calls me. He calls me old cocker. Well, how does it feel? You and you and Bob are now. I mean, I, this cannot have possibly occurred to you in 1956 or 1960. You and Bob are about the senior people in our field now. Yes, we are. Um, and and ain't that and ain't that absolutely correct? Well, is, is, is that just? Is that fair? Is that the way it should oh, be? Oh, it is absolutely just. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, that if he were King Arthur, I would be Queen Guinevere, and we would marry each other. But since he's the Pope, and since, uh, I, am, and since I am the knight on Bald Mountain, all we could do is just cling to each other as brothers. Well... <laughs> We're going to, sometime in the next few weeks, I really hope we'll have Bob on, uh, on, on the podcast, because at this point, um, you, the, the, two oldest, the two oldest, most distinguished writers in science fiction are both Jewish. Does that say anything? Yes. <laughs> okay. Care to amplify, Arlen? You care to amplify? You ask me a question of great irrelevance, Jerry. <laughs> you say to me, the two eldest, most outstanding, most accomplished, been here longest, done it, writers, at age 80, both 80, are Jewish. Uh-huh. And I say to you in Yiddish, but then... Which I don't know the meaning of, unfortunately. What then means what else? Okay, okay, here's the thing. Here, here's what I was sort of implying with that, is that uh, when you look at writers like C.L. Moore, yes. uh, who had to disguise her gender under initials when she was writing in pulp magazines, uh, you look at writers like Chip Delaney, Samuel R. Delaney. Uh, yes. There's clearly been a historical problem in the field in dealing 
with women and people of color and people of other ethnic origins, as you mentioned, Asians, for example. Was there ever any sense of that uh, from being a Jewish writer in the field? Was there, is there any history of anti-Semitism no, in science? There was, uh, John Campbell had problems with Jews, oh. but uh, he loved Randall Garrett, and when Silverberg went in with Garrett, and they wrote together, he accepted him. But then, right at the very start, Isaac Asimov. Well, yeah. And many of the writers had changed their names. There was never a problem among writers, whether it was a woman, uh, whether it was uh, whether it was uh, Noah Klingerman or uh, or uh, uh, or anyone else. I, I'm just not well, thinking of names name. at the moment. Lee Brackett, Ed Hamilton. Bradbury and I were a foursome. We were like their two separated children. Ray said we were sitting one night at dinner, and they went out to the bathroom, and Ray leaned across and said, you know we're brothers. And I said, how is that, Ray? He said, that's our mother and father, and it was true. Lee and Ed had been our fathers, and they were, you know, Ohio, the middle of the country. Bob was from a Brooklyn candy store. Mm -hmm. I had run away when I was age 12 and was a gang kid. And yet, we never had trouble having a woman sit at the table, a black person sit at the table. When Chip Delaney became our friend, Chip Delaney became a regular. Knowing of his, uh, I have to be careful how I say this, knowing of various people's racial historical or sexual preclusions was always known to all of us uh-huh. because we were all a clique and we didn't care. I mean, we really didn't give a shit. I the words were never used. The, the umbrage was never taken. Where we went, they went. Black, white, yellow, male, female, gay, lesbian, homosexual, whatever. And many of the writers that we knew for decades had all of these untellable social secrets that we just didn't about. We knew them. We didn't care. So your argument is they, that the your your point is that the science fiction writing community was was always a fairly open and tolerant community. Uh, yes. Whereas fans it and was the quality of what you did. There was a long and interview. And if you got above your station, we knew how to take you down. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was putting together this Library of America volume of 1950s science fiction, I came. We were doing a website, and somebody, not me, came across a long interview that Lee Brackett gave just toward the end of her life. And somebody asked her this question about: Did you experience, uh, you know, any kind of gender discrimination uh, in your career as a science fiction writer? And and her response was, and you're, you're sort of corroborating this, was that when she started effectively mentoring Ray Bradbury and joining that group in Southern California, that they were so glad to have a girl of any sort that they, they were just absolutely uh, accepting and promoting and so forth. But she said what she, when she really learned about sexual discrimination was when she went to Hollywood and started working with Howard Hawks and, uh, yeah. and, and the Hollywood yeah. producers. Yeah, they were. They were. It was a. It was a very gender discriminatory 
discriminatory uh, industry. And the women did most of the work, whether they were being script girls or assistant directors or directors who weren't getting the credit. Mm -hmm. uh, they were they were treated like uh, red shirts on Star Trek. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, kind of what what her interview said. And I gather things are better today. I mean, one of the things, and I think that since you've tried to promote this in your own career, Harlan, is that we do have a a, a lot of science fiction writers uh, of of color. We have LGBT science fiction writers. We have uh, People, we have Caribbean science fiction writers, Chinese science fiction writers. Um, yes. And it seems to be, I'm going to say, a little less hard to get published than it used to be, but it's not entirely there yet. Would that be fair? You're absolutely true, but that's only because science fiction is bugfuck. B-U-G-F-U-C-K. Okay. You have to have a mentality that wants to look into the future that wishes to be extrapolative, that wishes to say, what if? And most people don't do that. They lead perfectly decent, ordinary lives, step after step after step. They get up in the morning, they go to the job, they do the job, they come home at night, they have a dinner, they watch the telly, they go to sleep. You have to be weird to say to even have a conception. What if, in a world where everybody could read minds and have telepathy, how could you commit a murder and get away with it? Mm -hmm. Well, Alfred Bester was crazy enough to think of that. How crazy do you have to be to think of a world that Jack Vance would create? How crazy do you have to be to be a woman who would think of a story in which uh, the neighbor down the street is an alien. You've already got to be a little out of whack. Mm -hmm. You've got to be off the trail. And most people find it convenient in their lives to be not even drones, just average. Just fucking people. And you meet them in a day, and when you they open their mouths, the first words are, how are ya? And your response is, I'm fine. When in fact your daughter just got out of rehab. Mm -hmm. Your son is uh, in prison for three murders. And your dog has pellagra. People do not tell the <laughs> truth, Gary. They oh, lie. It can be fun, too. Well, if you lie on purpose to drag someone's chain, that's on purpose. But most of the time, people just pass in the night like dust motes, and that's a life unlit. The unexamined life is a life unlit. That's something you come back to a lot. I mean, one of my favorite early stories, and again, my one of my the, the top of the volcano was a terrific collection. But there are stories I love that are not in it. And are you listening? Is one? I don't think are you listening is in there because I don't. Yeah, think it's not. But but it's it's a terrific story exactly on that theme. You know what happens if you don't do anything with your life if you don't take control yep. of it you gotta you gotta be Sherlockian in your life you cannot just see you must observe and you must make the linkages and make the connections because that's where it provides 
positive interlocking with other human beings, not just how are you, I'm fine. Right. Well, we could probably go on for another hour, and we probably should, but uh, there's a there's 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 a tolerance limit on listeners to this podcast. So well, fuck them. Well, okay, we uh, could do that, or we could do another wait, one sometime. Gary, Gary, do you want to hang up? I will hang up. No, I don't want to hang up yet. I want to. Uh, when I stop the recording, we can chat a few minutes after it. So don't hang up. When well, I do talk, that. talk to Bill for a while. He's very interesting. <laughs> he has a he has a fascinating life. Gary, you actually gave me an interesting idea. Oh, uh, a a book of Harlan's mainstream stories. I think that would be a you great know? idea. Because you mentioned Daniel Hodge for the... Miss Anklestrap Wedgie. Yeah. Um, you know, neither your Jenny nor mine. Right. And a lot of these stories, and I'm pretty sure... I think I'm accurate, because Harlan, you weren't the only one doing this uh, back in the 50s. I've got, I've got copies of Rogue Magazine where you had stories, and the, the, the masthead of, of these men's magazines were all science fiction writers. There was Alfred Bester and Mac Reynolds yep. and, and Bob Silverberg, and it, was an, it seemed to be a place to publish mainstream stories... Well, I got them in there. And you got them in there, yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I came out here, I was destitute. I mean, truly destitute. I was getting out of my second marriage, and my second wife had a, uh, had a 13-year-old son, and they got an apartment, and I had to make a living. And I went in and uh, conned my way into getting an agent the first day and got a job the first day. Uh-huh. But they were paying pretty much coolie wages in those days. And so I had to make a, a buck. And I made a buck by finding Holloway House. And Holloway House, I got them Iceberg Slim mm-hmm. and a couple of other black writers and they started doing black books. And they were doing Sir Knight uh, Magazine and, uh, uh, and uh, Adam and, uh, and Knight Magazine and, and all of these others. And I walked in, and I managed to con my way into getting a story in the first issue. The story called Ladybug, Ladybug, Go Away From Me. And mm-hmm. I got them the villains. It was in the first issue, big bedsheet size magazine. The second issue, I had the cover. They had the villains on the cover. And it was a story of mine called High Dice. Mm-hmm. And then I started calling all my friends, and I got Silverberg in, I got Keith Lawmer in. I got uh, uh, Jared Rudder became the editor, and Jared Rudder was a swell guy. And I got him in, and I got any number of people in, women writers, uh, a couple of black writers, and they all started flocking, and they were getting $1,500 an article that oh. they would write in a half an hour, as opposed wow. to a penny or two cents a word from the magazines. You know, they'd send a story to Analog and maybe get five cents a word and get rejected. Mm-hmm. And then they'd send it down to the second magazine, then the third, then the fourth, and the fifth. By the time they got down to Fantastic Universe, they're getting a penny a word for three months after publication. Those days were very, very, very hard. I worked very hard. I worked 12, 13, 14 hours a night writing. Wow. Then I would get up early in the morning and take the manuscript down and sell it to the magazine and get a check from the bursar for $150, $250, and buy my groceries for the week. That's how I lived. But I think hand that, to hand. 
I, uh, yeah, that, that is a, a kind of classic uh, struggling writer story, but what I was getting at was that you didn't have to write science fiction stories for these magazines. So no, if you wanted I could to write whatever, I, any idea I got, right. they, would, they would buy if I wrote it well. Okay. You know what I miss? I, I wish someone would put together a collection of, uh, of Jack Finney's domestic comedies. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. The, the agent has not been... Uh, forthcoming? Agreeable. Mm-hmm. Back, I've been trying to put this book together for the best of Jack Finney for five years now. And let, uh, me guess, let me guess the initial, the first letter of his first name. Would it be D as in dog? No, but it would be M as in his son. <laughs> oh. going to stop uh, the recording. We can go on chatting, but this has been uh, over an hour. I don't know how much my cat erased from this recording. My cat is like Nixon's secretary. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he put his foot on the track. Well, it's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed talking to Bill on a Sunday morning, and I always love talking to you, Jared and Gary. And love talking to you too, Harlan. So let's do this again sometime. And Please, we'll, we'll get at your time. leisure. And until next Sell the book, Top of the Volcano. Everybody rush immediately to their website and bring up Subterranean Press and bring up HarlanDonaldsonBooks.com and think well of all of us. Oh, and Harlan, we solved the problem, and there is going to be an e-book of Top of the Volcano. Cool. Excellent Good. news. Okay, so as I said, it, uh, I said in the review, in my Tribune review, which, Bill, I think you quoted on your website, those people who haven't read Harling yet now have a one-volume way of finding out what all the fuss was about. That was a great review. I meant to say that was a, that's an oversight on my part. It was an absolutely stunning review, and I was delighted to have it. Well, thank you. And you deserved it. Thank so, you, baby. Next week, Jonathan and I will be back with another Cood Street podcast. Until then, um, goodbye. Bye-bye. And we're done. We don't have to hang up yet.